White Rocket Entertainment. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 397. 10, 9, 8, 7, ignition sequence started. All engines are started. We have ignition. 2, 1, 0. We have a liftoff. We have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center as the Saturn V is moving off the tail. It is now clear to the tower. Hello and welcome to the White Rocket Podcast, brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment in association with all of our great supporters via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico and this is one long conversation with a variety of guests about the best of popular culture. But you know what tonight is, in particular in popular culture, this is one of our big Game of Thrones episodes. We only have a few left to go, but we have a really big one to talk about tonight, and so of course... Joining me here once again to dig into a new episode of Game of Thrones and a, one of the biggest ones ever is my good friend John Ringer. Welcome back aboard, John. Thanks for having me, Van. Very excited to be here. Yeah, this is it, man. This is a big one. This I, I've got to say, off the top, off the right off the top, this was the weekend of all time. I, I can't imagine in pop culture having another weekend like this for the next twenty years because this weekend was the culmination of many years of character building and world building by both uh, George R. R. Martin and uh, Benahoff and Weiss and by Marvel with the big Avengers movie. And uh, Jim Yelton and I, for those of you listening, uh, in, in the same feed, the previous episode before this, is Jim Yelton, my occasional guest, and me for two and a half hours talking about Avengers Endgame, and we really go into all of it. So... So just on Friday, uh, saw Avengers Endgame, did a big show about it on Saturday, and then Sunday night we saw the lo- uh, the long night, the Battle of Winterfell uh, against the dead, the Army of the Dead, and now we're talking about that. John, how has your brain handled the last seventy two hours? <laughs> it's been a lot. Yes, it's been you know a lot of highs and lows and emotion and a lot of tension. Yeah. Um, so it's been a, a, a you're right it was uh more epic awesomeness than i expected to ever having one weekend i can say that yeah it's uh, i said it's like the super bowl the world cup and the world series and the nba finals of of geekdom all at once <laughs> and it was also a very big weekend for the extended stark family <laughs> <laughs> between <laughs> between tony and then the winterfell gang this was quite the stark weekend you know so tonight we are gathered here to dig into episode three of season eight of Game of Thrones on HBO, uh, which the I think the official name ended up being The Long Night, which is actually kind of interesting. I'll tell you why in just a second. But it's also been called by some The Battle of Winterfell. I think either one works. Either one is fine. Um, HBO has been kind of weird this season. They haven't been releasing the actual titles of the episodes until well after the show aired. So it's been kind of weird. But... But um, this is one we've been building toward and waiting toward, waiting for from the very first season of the very first episode, and really, I guess, from the first scene of the first book. And here we are. What do you think? I mean, 
I guess the first thing I got to ask, and, and by the way, as we always say, we're going right into the spoilers. So if you, I'm not sure why you would be listening to a <laughs> podcast about episode three of season eight of a show you're not watching. Um, but make sure you watch the but show. Just in, just in case you are. Just in case, make sure you watch the uh, the show. And, and if you do want to, if you do want to listen to our shows without actually watching the show, that's great. We appreciate it. We we're glad you think enough of our commentary to find it worth your time. I'm I'm thrilled to hear it. But I'm just saying we're going to spoil it. You know, if you, so, we're we're going to spoil it if you haven't seen it. So, if that matters to you, check out now and come back after you've seen it. Okay, so. First thing I've got to say, first thing I've got to ask you is, you know, I think it's the question every Game of Thrones fan has asked each other over the last 24 hours or so, which is, did this, did this deliver the goods? What is your verdict? Just overall, we're going to get into the details, but did this deliver the goods? I feel like it did. I mean, I, I was prepared for more major character death. I, and, and when I say that, I was prepared in the same way that you prepare yourself for a car crash. Like I was <laughs> clinching up and, you know, yes. putting my hands up and, and bracing myself for impact. Uh, soon crash positions kind right. of. So I I was prepared that way emotionally for major characters to die. But at the same time, like they literally set us up to the seconds before the battle started at the end of episode two. So episode three was literally an hour and 20 minutes of battle, 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 battle. Yep. With no, you know, prelude and no epilogue, just go, go, go. And I think uh, in that sense, it was an incredibly successful episode. It was intense. Um, it was be a really intense at times and overwhelming, visceral. Yes. Um, and I think it did deliver the goods And I'm, you know, I'm not disappointed that the night king is dead and no major characters have died well <laughs> i was just gonna say only game of thrones could make somebody say i'm really disappointed that more of my favorite characters didn't get killed yes i, I can't think of any other show where people would say that but it's like this show has so subverted our expectations that we find it strange when it's not carnage. It's like if we watched The Red Wedding and we said, you know, some people survived that. I, that's unfortunate. No, <laughs> it's not. And, and and you know, the thing that kept bouncing around in my brain, and you, I, want, I want your opinion on this. I really have been wanting to know what you think about this. Ever since we got away from the books and it became the Benahoff and Weiss show, right? Allegedly with an outline from George, but, you know, come on. It's, their, it's them in the writer's room, right? Ever since we got away from the books, because the books haven't been written yet or published, haven't been published yet, things have become, I don't want to say worse, and in some ways, actually, I think better. I, I know I'll probably get eggs thrown at me for that, but, you know, George tended to do stuff that made me really sad and disappointed and angry. I'd come back for more. We were all masochistic in that way, you know, oh, beat me some more, George, make me miserable some more. But he tended to always play the downbeat, right? He always hit the downbeat, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. Even in the high moments, there's a downbeat. Whereas ever since it's become Benahoff and Weiss doing the, doing the storytelling, it seems like the story in every way has become more conventional 
and less downbeat and more moving toward, even with people getting killed, still moving toward, I hesitate to say a happy ending, but not a miserably horrible ending. I, I was to the point that I couldn't imagine George. I know that George has said all along a bittersweet ending. I was getting to the point, honestly, where I couldn't imagine anything but bitter. And sure. It, and it seems like since they've been plotting the course for us, they kind of said, okay, we had you know five and a half seasons of digging down in the hole. Now we're going to have two and a half seasons of climbing back out of the hole. Does that, what do you think? Yes. And I think, I mean, the biggest one is just, you know, George just spread the tale further wide and more characters and more people more spread out. And he couldn't, you know, untangle the Miranese knot and get Daenerys back to Westeros. And I think that's the point where they kind of, you know, they left the books behind and and left him behind. At that point, they've kind of, turned for home in the big picture of the story where he was never able to make that turn. Do you know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. He's still moving outward. Mm-hmm. You know, the story is still expanding and it's not contracting back toward the, the climax. So, yeah. um, I think that's a big thing with them is they just, just turned from home, you know, for home and, you know, you say, "Oh, it's it's more upbeats," but their their parts included Cersei blowing up the church. That's true. Um, and you know, Euron killing everybody and taking them hostage and that kind of stuff. So, and That's this true. thing last night. So, I, I, you know, I yes, um, I think, but I think this story is so good that people sometimes don't appreciate the fact that they. St- there was stuff last night that subverted our expectations yeah. that people can't even realize it. Like well, Arya being the hero is that. It's so great though, isn't it? Oh, it's it, awesome. It I makes love me it. so happy. But, but that's what I was going to mention is I have no doubt. I have no, I have zero doubt that when we ever, if, if, and when we ever get the last book and this all happens in his version, I have no doubt that his version of all this will be so different, uh, including the motivations of the Night King, including the resolution, and including the body count. I just, I can't see his version coming out anywhere near. I mean, think about this. He killed more major characters at a wedding than Benahoff and Weiss killed at the greatest battle in the history of television. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that for a second. George killed more major characters at a random wedding <laughs> than they killed in terms of major characters, you know, name characters, than they killed. Sure. I mean, if George writes that battle last night, there's three people coming out alive, I feel like. Maybe. It's just, they're just different. And to be honest, with my sensibilities... When, whenever those books do come out, I'll read them and I'll be utterly engrossed and everything on the edge of my seat till the very bitter end. But I feel like at the end, I'll probably like the TV version better simply because I do like a little happier, you know, I don't want to say happier <laughs> ending, but a happier course of events. And again, you, you make a good point. This hasn't been super happy, but come on, compared to the way... And, and I'm not trying to crap on George R. R. Martin at all. It, you know, those books are brilliant. They're amazing. I'm just saying 
I like the slightly less downbeat tone that the TV show has had. I didn't say upbeat. I said slightly less downbeat. Is that is that fair? Uh, I, I'm good with that. But the other thing is I think like because the books haven't been written, we don't know if George wasn't going to go here with some of this. Like yeah. you say it's slightly less downbeat. It's because characters who have had you know, absolute show arcs. Yeah. Like Sansa and Theon and oh, Arya and people are in good places now. They, you know, they did the swim through a hundred yards of crap thing mm. to get here, and they're better now. But it doesn't mean that all that stuff didn't happen. So, like, just the fact that they're, you know, we're not having to watch Theon get tortured every day doesn't mean that you know, wow, the show's in a happier place. You know, yeah. it is. Um, but I think some of it is also the, again, these huge long character arcs that he created that we care about coming to closure and mm-hmm. coming to, you know, uh, re, you know, re encounter each other again and stand beside each other again in this battle. And I think that's, like you said, it's a positive thing, but it's, it's not, it's a, testament to the you know all the stuff he built to get us oh yeah yeah everything was earned i mean that again that's why it's such a strange coincidence that we get the avengers finale the Mm -hmm. big mcu finale and this on the same weekend is because both of them more than almost any big entertainment i can think of in the last decade both of them absolutely earned every bit of it they put in all the long hard work of earning our our compassion, earning our interest, earning our you know wanting to know more. None of this. I mean, like if you, you know, compare compare this to really understand what I'm saying. Compare it to those Star Trek movies that Abrams and Lindelof have been doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, where they didn't put any time or any effort into earning emotional scenes like. You know, like when Captain Kirk is going to die or whatever in the yeah. in, in, in the darkness, and and they're basically relying on the fact that you know the reference they're making because they haven't made they haven't put in any of the hard work. Whereas Game of Thrones and Avengers both have spent years and hours and hours of time of very well written and very well performed time getting us up to the point that we absolutely care about. I mean, when Ed died, I was like, oh, no, Ed, you know, whereas, I mean, you know, three, four years ago, I'd have been like, nah, now I'm like, oh, not Ed, you know, I was deathly concerned about the dog, the wolf, deathly, he's like my favorite character now, and I'm, you know, that's at least, you know, and he's, I was deeply concerned that that he was okay, so, um, more about that, so, well, anyway, all right, well, that's, I, so I think, yeah, I feel, I know that some people were disappointed, and that's just inevitable, right? You're always going to have some people, for different legitimate reasons, that are not as happy about it as others. So we'll get into some of that as we go into more detail. So um, the battle, all right, let's look at the battle. Um, I feel like Miguel Sapochnik, he is the man for, for directing giant battles on this show. I'll watch, you know, if he goes on and does the Brady Bunch reboot or something, I want to see the episode where the Brady Bunch fights a giant zombie army because it'll be awesome, you know. This is what he does. And, and I was going to point out that if you look at the Wikipedia page for Game of Thrones, 
it shows who the directors are for the next three episodes, and it's about what you'd expect uh, because he'll he'll be back. But David Nutter, that directed the first one, let me see, first uh, two, 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 he's back next week. So you got to think that Nutter comes in next week to do the um, the reckoning, Af- you know, aftermath. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and then Sapochnik comes in to kick some more butt, which is about what we would have predicted. And then you have Benoff and Weiss themselves directing the final episode and and that that let me that kind of segues real quick into what I was going to say about uh about another show. I've said all along how similar this is to Babylon 5. You know, I even predicted, remember, that they would deal with the big existential force of nature threat, the faceless kind of threat before they go dealt with the human threat because that has more You, you did. That has more emotional impact and meaning. I've said all along, the Night King is basically the weather. Cersei is a bad guy. Cersei's Hitler, but the Night King is just Hurricane Katrina, you know? And Winterfell was New Orleans. And um, so Babylon 5 was the same way. Halfway through the, the big climactic season, they dealt with the Shadow War. And then the end of that season, they dealt with the human enemy back on Earth. But, um, but the funny thing, too, is a couple of other parallels. One is... This is the episode where they went to fight the big existential enemy, and it was called The Long Night, and the episode where the Babylon 5 crew went to fight the big shadow war was called The Long Night. And the final episode of both shows are being directed or were directed by the showrunner themselves. So I'm going to therefore imagine that the final episode will be another sort of aftermath, a reckoning, you know, in other words, episode five, I'm going to predict, will be like a huge battle between what's left of the good guys and the gold company, and it'll take up a lot of that episode, and there'll be probably some spying and some special forces action and whatever, and Tyrion, hopefully. he's it's it's. Are we not due for Tyrion to do something big to shake things up? A hundred percent. No, yeah. this is his moment now. Yeah. 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 Ar- Arya's had her moment. Arya's had her moment. The dragons had their moment. I feel like the end, we're going to have... Uh, it's the ones that haven't had a chance to do something big yet. They've saved Tyrion for this. They've saved Varys for this. John and Danny still... They didn't really get to do a whole lot in this episode, but just kind of fly around, which was fine. So, um, yeah. So that's how I kind of see the... Now, what did you think about the battle? Was it... Some people complained it was too literally too dark... I thought that was kind of on purpose to a certain degree, the, the fog of war. What did you think about that? I mean, I think the, the use of darkness was really effective as, and as a way to build the tension and the fear because you couldn't see what was out there, when they were coming or what was coming. Yeah. <clears throat> I thought that part was and, – and then so then you had the darkness – and then on top of that, you had kind of the winter storm effect that yep. the Night King brought with him. And I think it did that plus kind of the way they shot the early fight scenes outside the walls. made it really hard to tell what the hell was going on. Yeah. Um, and and I, but the way like just them staring out there into the darkness, hearing the dead coming, but you can't see them yet. I thought those scenes were incredibly effective. Yes, exactly. 
And then when the when the Dothraki with the flaming swords go out there and just start mm-hmm. disappearing, I thought that was part of me was like, oh my gosh, everything we went through to get this army and they burn it in one in, in five seconds. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, if it's got to go, this is a certainly a very effective way to get it across, you know. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, we have to assume that Ghost got about halfway across the battlefield and then saw a rabbit or something and had to run off and chase it, right? I have no idea if Ghost is alive. Um, but, you know, he he could have been guarding Bran. Why was he out there? I, anyhow. <laughs> yeah, he had no business with the Dothraki. I, I think he just, they smelled like meat or something, and he, he wanted to follow them. Well, he, but, see, he wasn't really with the Dothraki ever. He was always with Jorah. Yeah, he was with Jorah. Like, this is a guy from the north. I can hang with him. Yeah, yeah. But then he got like halfway across the field, saw the dead, and said, uh, I'd rather go chase this rabbit. I think I buried a bone over there. I'm pretty sure I have a bone buried right <laughs> over there. I'm going to go over and take care of that. That was Ghost. If you could hear his inner, inner dialogue, inner monologue. Um, but, yeah, the... Uh, the, so while we're talking about, well, we're gonna we're gonna get to the specifics of that in a minute. But yeah, I thought the darkness worked fine. I guess I, I mean I have a TV that was able to show the the blackness better than some, so I could see some things. But even still, I was kind of literally sitting on the edge of the sofa, leaning forward, squinting, trying to figure yes. out. But but I thought that worked, you know. Yes, I mean it, but I think it's the kind of thing like I'm. Going to have to go back and watch it again, yeah, to have a better sense of what, just because there was so much happening, it was so confusing, and there was that. But it really, I think, did kind of create for the audience. It, people are spoiled; they don't want the fog of war. They want to have the mm. bird's eye view, perfectly clear, and see the whole battle. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep, yep. And they they didn't get that here. No, they didn't. But I think it it was more effective. Because it wasn't a human army and it was the undead, I think it created a lot more tension. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. And speaking of the tension, I mean, there was a lot of... I I kept reading and hearing that uh, that what Sapochnik did was he watched the Lord of the Rings movies and was taking notes on when he got bored. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that was a really good idea because it gave him a sense of how much battle, carnage, melee can you show before you really need to cut away to a human reaction, a human interaction, you know. Mm-hmm. And one thing I want to point out, I think that I, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I think that Peter Jackson pioneered in some ways the mixing of horror elements into fantasy battles. Before, before Lord of the Rings movie, before the Lord of the Rings movies that Peter Jackson made, Fantasy battles tended to be very much like medieval contests, you know? Mm. Like, think about Excalibur or something. Whereas P- uh, Peter Jackson was the one that brought a schlocky horror director's, you know, sensibility of, of having just the macabre, you know, just horror stuff mixed into battle. And it was very effective in Lord of the Rings. And I thought that they had a lot of horror elements to this episode. Oh, yeah. I guess having the yeah, undead I mean, is the enemy helps. It does, but the, I mean the them coming out of the darkness like a wave and and knocking mm-hmm. down the kind of the oh first rank and that kind of stuff, and then you know them kind of chasing Arya through the 
always and and the that was and then like the scenes of like them coming over the castle wall and like diving off the roof to the inner courtyard yeah. that kind of in a wave yeah um that was at, or them doing kind of the lay down their bodies and build a bridge for each other thing was was very effective that it was also really effective how the 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 army of the dead was just totally ravenous i mean they you know they were absolutely out of control until the fire came up and then they just stood like they were at attention i thought that was a really interesting and very effective counterpoint to show that they were being so bloodthirsty and vicious for most of that episode under orders you know in other words yes, they were, it was there was a fine degree of control mhm they weren't just like wild animals out of control. They were acting like wild animals on purpose. And as soon as that fire came up and they couldn't attack anymore, they just kind of stood there. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't like staggering around like zombies on Walking Dead or something going, blah, blah. no, they were just standing at attention like, like, the, uh, like the freaking Unsullied. And mm-hmm. I, you know, seeing that, I was just, that creeped me out, honestly. Because when you see like, you know, white, you know, walkers, uh, the dead, the zombie type things, we like to think of them as being completely mindless, and that's why they do the things they do. They're totally mindless, and they just have a thirst for blood or brains or whatever. But to see them stop and just stand at attention like like they're waiting for the next instruction, man, that was, I thought, was a very effective um, visual. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's look at some of the big moments and some of the smaller moments this episode now, get in a little more granular detail. Um, Melisandre showed up. I wasn't expecting that. I guess I, in retrospect, we should have known because she said she was going to be dying at Winterfell or whatever or something like that. Well, she she said in Westeros. She said she was coming back, and yeah. she did. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've, I've I've got a I don't I, I think I have a note here somewhere, but there was that exchange between her and Arya. There was a couple, but but one of them called back. To I guess it was season three when Melisandre. Did you see that? that there was they they, mm-hmm. um, they called back to her saying, you know, people with what you know, green eyes, blue eyes, brown eyes, whatever. You'll put you'll close a lot of eyes basically, and people have been reading that as well. The White Walkers have blue eyes, so that's what that. I, I guess <laughs> I'm not sure no. that might be giving them a little more credit, you know, than they earned, but. No, no, I think it was because it was Arya was, you know, sh- shaken up at that moment. She was off her game. And Melisandre was there in that moment to tell her, I have seen this. I have foreseen it. You know, and basically telling Arya, like, you can kill him. I have seen it. Mm. Uh, and that's what gave Arya kind of the confidence and the energy to go give it a shot. You know, she was before that she was kind of just huddled in there with the hound taking shelter. Mm. And as soon as Melisandre said that she basically stood up and ran out of that room. Like I'm on the warpath. Yeah. 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 That was interesting. There were several moments in this episode where our heroes showed their feet of clay, you know, like, the hound, when he saw the fire, he just kind of mm. said, all right, I'm going to go over here and huddle in the corner. And like you say with Arya, Sam was kind of that way through most of it. There were several moments. I mean, John in the courtyard, when the when the ice dragon was trying to zap him, 
Um, he, there really wasn't a lot he could do. It was like he was pinned down by snipers, and every time he tried to get out of cover, he got shot at again, you know. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it was neat to see these heroes that are supposed to be, you know, like archetypal, fearless heroes. They're, as, you know, just like everybody on this show, they're human in the sense of they're vulnerable to, you know, to emotions and to fear and to the overwhelming threat that the, that these creatures posed um my big question here i want you to address this why send the cavalry and the infantry out from the other side of the trench from that defended position because they ultimately accomplished nothing and if they had just stayed behind the walls or even retreated south and let the Night King do exactly what he did anyway, they still could have killed him, and and Danny's army would be alive now. Yeah, but I mean, number one, you don't know if you're going to kill him without all those guys. Again, that it's like I talked about last week. the 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 plan for the good guys is to kill the Night King, but also to kill White Walkers. The individual dead people don't matter at all to right. either side. Right. Like they literally killing one of them doesn't matter. So the only thing that matters is finding the White Walkers and killing them or finding the Night King and killing them. So what they should have done is use the Dothraki, like a thousand Dothraki to surround Jorah and ride him all the way across the battlefield with them kind of like a spear around him just to get him through the lines of the dead so then he can go where the White Walkers are and try to kill one of them. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that's the only value that troops like the the, the Dothraki had uh, was to protect the hero kind of guy so they could get to the place where they could fight the you know, the enemy leaders and kill them. Otherwise there's no value. Now you're right. Like here's the biggest problem that the good guys had is the Dothraki are useless in a fixed position battle. Yeah. Um, Now there's the other part. They had other cavalry and basically we forgotten about it, you know, story wise, or they made them dismount and fight as infantry. The Knights of the Veil were there. Mm hmm. You know, so where were they exactly? I guess they were all gave up their horses and they were, you know, fighting on foot with Brienne and them. You didn't see the big guy, uh, the Knight of the Veil guy that's always hanging around with Sansa and them. Right, right, right. So, like, were they gone? There's no way they sent any military forces away. They just didn't. Um, so anyhow, like that, the heavy arm, the heavy cavalry, like them, would have been much more effective. Just because they would have been wearing plate, the horses would have been wearing barding, and they could have kind of run through, you know, the the undead and kind of pushed their way through them. Yeah. To get to the, so the, the the Dothraki, I get like it was worth a shot to see if they could just blow them all the undead off the field, basically. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Everybody else, they should have had multiple lines of defensive positions, like multiple trenches and multiple little walls of spikes and stuff. And they all should have started behind that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there was no need to start in the open. Right. Where the undead could just rush up out of the dark and hit you. You should have been standing behind a, you know, 
a trench, and as soon as the dead show up, you light it on fire, and you stand there shooting with arrows for half an I, hour. I decided. So, I decided that maybe the commander for the for that was uh, Denethor. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, you know, I get, the, and again, like the siege weapons being out in front of the trench didn't make any sense at all. The siege weapons, the trebuchets, and the catapults should have been either up on the walls, on the towers, or whatever, because they got big towers. They didn't use them all, or you know, up, you know, underneath the walls behind the trench where they could keep firing, you know, until the last moment. Um, and I mean, they did, they were kind of useless. So. Yeah. They quit firing as soon as the Dothraki reached the front lines and they never fired again. Yeah. So, I mean, you had lots of labor. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much time you didn't have that much time, but you could have built more trenches, more earthen fortification kind of things. Uh, you could, you know, Make the dragons do some work. I don't know, but you you could have done more there. Um, I think to to protect the regular infantry than just sticking them out there in the open. I thought the other thing, and you 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 raise a good point about the knights of the veil. Vale. I thought that other thing that 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 bothered me a little bit, certainly in retrospect, was we spent so much time with the with the with the uh, the unsullied. And with the main characters fighting, that we never really saw anybody else. Like you say, we never saw the Knights of the Vale. We never really saw much of the Winterfell troops. Or if we did, you didn't know it. You know what I mean? It was like just chaos. Yeah. So it was just I mean, hard to tell yeah. the order of battle, basically. I mean, I, 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 my sense is the Knights of the Vale and those kind of people with Brienne and the Wildlings and the Winterfell people were, were the Northmen were kind of with over there with the hound and uh tormented those guys or they were up on the walls yeah well it's gonna be interesting to find out how many are left because you got to think all the dothraki are gone and a whole lot oh and the unsullied i was you know we're having a conversation with somebody today about this if the the problem with the unsullied is they are a phalanx, you know, Greek-style mm. army, Macedonian-style army, which is great against a big infantry unit or even a cavalry unit if you do your spears right. But every time just about that we've seen the Unsullied fight on this show, they've gone up against irregular units that are not, they are not well-suited to fight. You know, whether that be, uh, who did they... The the remember the the harpy the sons of the harpy or whatever we're, just, mm-hmm. we're yeah. just massacring them because they weren't a regular army they were guerrilla fighters and then the dead mm-hmm. were just massacring them because they they're about linking up the sh- so, uh, the the shields and the spears and advancing like a like a unit and that doesn't work really well against a suicidal you know kamikaze wave of uh, of of attackers like this. So yes, they, we've never really, I guess the only time they were really effective was last, was it last season when they fought the Lannisters maybe once? And that was mostly the Dothraki. Yeah. I mean, they fought the Lannisters at, at, you know, they took Castle Rock or whatever, but that was kind of blah. That wasn't much to it. Yeah. So I've just been extremely, I, I just, I declare, I, I like the Unsullied. I love Grey Worm, but I have declared them the, least impressive military unit in Westeros because of just the... I said that basically they're really super disciplined and all. I described them today on Twitter. I said it's like they're a 
70s, 1980s option wishbone team, and they keep going up against air raid offenses. Well, but I'm going to say this. Their discipline was incredible watching that last night. Yeah. And I think if they had not been there and they had not had that discipline, that battle would have been over in about two minutes. Yeah, they're very good at retreating. I, everybody else would have <laughs> run and they would have collapsed. Yeah. Um, and and I and the gate would have been overrun and, the, and that would have been it. Yeah. Like the the battle wouldn't have lasted a tenth as long without them. That's true. They're very good at retreating, but they're very good at holding position as best they can, and and they're fearless. They're like robots. So I give them credit. Um, uh, the, what do you think about the Air Force battle, the air combat? I mean, it would have helped if the, not for all the snow and the storm that came in that kind of obscured them. That's Again, people have crap all over the Night King's plan but I, I, because he lost. But in, yeah. I think a lot of it was really smart. I think the Winter Storm thing was really clever. The good guys had plans to use you know, signaling with torches and to get the dragons to do different things and move to different places. And, and they couldn't do that because they couldn't freaking see each other. Yeah. And, and they couldn't be nearly as effective like in the doing the, the close air support thing where they were breathing fire down on the, just the deads in front of the lines of the, of, of the fenders because they couldn't see. And so I think that was a huge, a really smart thing that he did. And then additionally, like it kind of disoriented all the defenders too. They couldn't see well until it was going on. And I think it made it much harder for John and Daenerys to fight in the air because they were getting blown around mm-hmm. and they couldn't see well. I, the, the, some of the aerial combat was really cool. I mean, when John's dragon and, and the Night King's dragon were engaged and they were biting each other and that kind of stuff, I mean, that was really exciting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I guess we should have gotten Reynolds on here to talk about the, <laughs> the weather situation. <laughs> I hate to think what he would have said. So, yeah, I I just couldn't tell. I got to ask now while we're thinking while we're thinking about it. I got the sense that John's dragon died. Am I wrong? Because it hit the ground and slid, and he fell off. I don't know if it's dead or not. If it's not dead, it's very wounded, and I don't think it could fly anytime soon. How about that? Yeah, Danny's is a little better, but it's the one. But Danny's is the one that had the like eight thousand freaking dead mm-hmm. poking it so it's wounded too um and it's not going to be full speed for a while yeah i've seen reports that said both of them are alive but after john's crashed i never saw it again no i mean he he you know ran away from it to chase the night king yeah um but we again we didn't see it like dead dead so I'm always skeptical of in this show if somebody dies off screen I'm skeptical. So that's like the same right. thing with Ghost and that dragon. I suspect right. they're alive just because we didn't see them die. Oh, I'm I'm going to be 100% sure that Ghost is alive. I'm telling you. He had to go get his milk bone that he'd buried and he's fine. Mm-hmm. Um um The Night King is fireproof. <laughs> we knew he was normal fireproof. Yeah. Because he's shown that before, but in, like she had the full uh, Daenerys did the full dragon mm. fire all over the him, barbecue. which is supposed to be like the hottest thing ever. Yeah, and he was just like, you know, hey, yeah, feels good. That's fine. A little over here on the mm-hmm. left, yeah, a little tickle. Yeah, I, yeah, I. Somebody said, is he a Targaryen? 
No, he's not a Targaryen. He's just <laughs> he, he's magic, uh, cold magic is basically is, what it is. Is John fireproof? I, I wouldn't test that theory. <laughs> <I don't laughs> yeah, it, wasn't it? Would. Wasn't it Bran that said, when they asked him, "Could the dragon kill the Night King?" and Bran said, "Nobody's ever tried." I think that was what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't know. Well, now they know. It, it was a good plan. Yeah. Dragon can kill him? No. Little girl? Yes. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, Leanna Mormont. I mean, I guess I hate to see her go. One of the recaps I saw this morning said she was too good for the show, and so she's gone. <laughs> but I, I guess if she's if she's got to die, she's certainly got a send-off worthy of that character and the way that that actress has played that character. And and not just that she killed the giant, but she was wounded on the ground and, you know, veteran grown men soldiers are getting wiped out right yes. and left. And she stands up and charges an undead giant by herself. Unbelievable. Screaming at That's, it. Yeah. Hardcore to the end. She's awesome. She really is. Yeah, I'm going to miss her, but she certainly got a, a send-off worthy of a little Lady Mormont. She was great. Um, Arya running through the castle. That was interesting because was it that she was panicking or that it was just like everything was turning so much against them that she just had to run, you know? I mean... I mean, she was running because she was on, like, the walls and the roof and the undead were all around her. And then she was in the buildings and the undead were there. But also, I think she was kind of panicking and kind of freaking out because the undead were everywhere. Do you know what I'm saying? And then she was doing the hiding, sneaking, you know, distracting them thing. But then at one point, it turned into her just kind of freaking out and then chasing yeah. her. And, you know, finding her and chasing her and her freaking out. Yeah. And that was when but she it was a, regrouped. We, we have had very, we've had lots of different kinds of scenes in the show over eight years, but we've never had something like that basically in the dark, you know, undead hunting one person like that in a building. So it was a very, it was just a different kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was the, yeah, it was, it was a, like another, again, another horror thing, you know, the young girl mm -hmm. in the dark with all kind of creatures skulking around and, and it was just cool. It was neat how quiet she could be, right? I mean, they never heard her except when mm -hmm. she, like, her blood dripped or when she wanted them to hear her. She was rolling under the table and over across the hall and around the corner. And, you know, it was just neat how she was using her skills. Now, um, we got to John trying to catch the Night King on the ground. And, um, oh, by the way, we have to say goodbye to Beric Dondarrion, and we still have the Hound. Of course, we said that the Hound had a life insurance policy named the Mountain. Mm -hmm. The Hound wasn't going anywhere as long as his brother was still out there to kill again. Yes. You, but didn't you, we, 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 we basically said Beric was going to die, didn't we? Oh, 100%. This yeah. was his moment. The, the, the two characters I think we were the most confident were going to die were Theon and Beric Dondarrion. Yes. And that's what happened. And Beric's sole purpose of being brought back all those times was to keep Arya alive in that hallway. That was his purpose in life. Yeah, that's great. And he did. And and um, I believe I predicted before Sunday night, 
I actually tweeted, I said, I think there's going to be a lot fewer major characters die than everybody thinks. Mm-hmm. I think I was right because I just feel like they they really kind of scraped around and said, who can we kill and, and it won't affect the rest of the story? And that's pretty much who they killed. And he was one of them. He had kind of served his purpose too. And I think Jorah was probably the, and Jorah and Theon, I guess, right, were the, were the big ones among the heroes. I don't know if I call Melisandre a hero. She was kind of like a another natural force um, about the crypts. We did get the dead coming out of the, that was the, the least surprising thing of all, right? Everybody mm-hmm. knew, everybody knew that, um, that that was going to happen. Um, I thought it was a little underwhelming. I was expecting to see like Stark ancestors in numbers marching around they really played it more like we focused on Sansa and Tyrion and Varys and we got their reactions as all the screaming was in the darkness in the background. So we, we didn't really, other than like a hand coming through the wall or a skeleton climbing out of a crypt or whatever once or twice, I, what did you, th- I, I thought that was, I mean, it, it, I feel, I feel guilty finding fault with something <laughs> such a small thing well, but but i think it's it, it, you say finding fault there's two things one is they did not have any undead that were characters we knew from before none mm-hmm. there was no hodor except no the giant ned no but the giant wasn't one one it was it a was, different giant oh well, okay i didn't realize that so there was no characters that came back that were new care that were characters we knew from before that were dead and in the crypts, what they didn't show was women and children getting massacred by undead, and I'm glad they didn't show that. Like, even on this show, that's a bridge too far for me. Yeah, yeah. So I'm fine they didn't go there. And the moment when Tyrion you know, and Sansa come out from behind the thing, it's basically them saying, like, we'd rather die trying to protect a couple of people than sit back here and save our own bacon. Well, that's what I was wondering about is didn't – see, I thought for the longest time, I thought Arya gave Sansa the Valyrian steel dagger. No, she just gave her a, a regular obsidian dagger. Okay, okay. I thought that – I thought she gave her that one. I'm thinking, don't give her that knife. You're going to need it. But, yeah. So I kept thinking, why doesn't Sansa come out and start stabbing people with the pointy end? Hmm. And she and Tyrion were kind of sitting back there having a, almost a romantic moment. In the face of death, literally. And I'm thinking, well, I, go I, out But also, I fight. think they're survivors. You know what I'm saying? Especially yeah. Sansa. Yeah. And they were doing the survival thing. Yeah. Up until they really didn't think they could anymore, I guess. And they decided to go out, go out fighting, but they didn't have to. The, the timing worked out. I guess Varys is still alive. I don't think mm-hmm. we killed him. So, but like, we didn't see Gilly or Missande. No, so. that's right. No, that's no. right. Yeah. That's right. We saw Varys with blood on his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. What was going on with 
Theon basically he did a great job as long as he had some flaming arrows, right? I thought that he and the Ironborn fought to the bitter end, but once he ran out of arrows, Theon basically just said, "I'm going to fly my airplane into this uh, the side of this battleship." Yeah, he he became a kamikaze, and um, the, I, I saw. I've got to mention I, I talked last week about the the uh, the Game of Thrones analyst that we never knew we needed. Which is Carrion Johnson. And he had some he had some great ones last night. And he said at one point, he said, Theon just goes with like the most basic move ever and is surprised that he gets slapped down, you know. I forgot exactly how he put it, but it was just really funny how he was essentially saying that Theon didn't try anything stealthy or sneaky or clever. He just pointed his spear or whatever ahead and just ran screaming right at him and it didn't work out too well. So Yeah, it was kind of dumb. Yeah. But I thought he did a great job up until that moment and he got the kind of the he got the sort of benediction from Bran, you know, you're a good guy, you're a good man. Which he wasn't, yes. but he had redeemed himself at that point. So that's nice. And then what about Bran? I mean, so Professor X is sitting there while the X-Men are all about to get killed, and he's just sitting there, and he's he was plugged into Cerebro, and, and, and if, if Cerebro is a bunch of crows, for briefly. But what There's was Bran? Trees. Yeah, what was he doing? So this, it, you hit the nail on the head. He isn't Professor X. <laughs> the biggest misperception with the entire show is how and it sprouted eight million fan theories is yeah. how powerful Bran is and what he can do and can't do. I think what we found out last night is he's not that powerful. He can't do that much. Yeah, he can he's see more, things, but he can't really do many things. He's more of a repository and less of an actor. Yeah, and, and people are like, he changed the past. He could do any. He could go through time. And he built the wall, and he built Winterfell, and he mm. made the Mad King, and he's the Night King, and all this kind of theories. The reality is, he, you know, at one very specific moment in time. He changed somebody that he already had a deep psychic connection with because he had possessed them 20 times or whatever. Yeah. Um, back in time, he possessed them again. So it's not some random person that he'd never seen before except in a vision. It was somebody that he already had a psychic connection with. So I think the one of the big things from last night is like a brain was you know, a complete non-factor. Like he sent out the ravens or whatever to see the Night King, but that didn't he didn't communicate that information to anybody. And so what did that do other than just help you, the viewer, see where the Night King was? Yeah. Uh, and or lead the Night King back to him, which is maybe what he was trying to do. Which so. may be, yeah, lighting lighting a flare. I'm glad you said that, because this was something else. Um this was something else that's that's been bothering me that I wanted to point out is that, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show that ever since Benahoff and Weiss took over, they've been going a much more straight line narrative, right? They haven't been, as you said, they haven't been branching stuff out. They've been kind of bringing things back together. And out of all that, we should have clearly gotten the sense that the simplest answer is usually what they're going to go with. Right, George laid out these complex possibilities. They've just been drawing the net closed in straight lines. Right? There's hardly yeah. there's hardly anything they've done. So what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, 
when we come up with all these theories about the things that Brand has done or could do or whatever, Benhoff and Weiss are like, you know, maybe, maybe not, but this is just going to be a straight up bang, bang, bang. There's not going to be, you know, like for example, this won't be resolved by Brand becoming the Night King or some kind of ancient, you know, prophecy that's fulfilled or they haven't been doing their part for humanity to give babies to the White Walkers or, you know, all these complex theories we've come up with that are perfectly, perfectly rational in the books. But on the TV show, the answer is never the book answer. The answer has always been stab it with a knife, you know, kill it, beat it. That's it's it there ha, it ha, the, the the TV show answer is usually far far simpler and more direct for better or for worse. I'm not saying that's good, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying the TV show answer has never been remotely as complicated as we all have made it based on the books. Well, and the TV show, that was a good way to put it, but also the part of the TV show direct answer is much less reliance on the fantasy elements of the story. Yeah. I think they're not as comfortable with those as George R. R. Martin was, and so they're not going to just pick up the fantasy elements of Brand's powers and story and weave them in. They're just going to kind of minimize it and have him sitting there. That's what it is. Yep. Have him just sitting there until somebody jumps out and, um, all right, so that gets us to the big, big moment of this episode where Arya jumps out of nowhere and we get that awesome little sequence like out of a kung fu movie or something where he grabs her by the throat and by the hand. He's now out of hands, <laughs> but she's got another hand, so she drops the dagger, catches it in another hand and stabs him and blows him up, blows up the entire army. So Arya killed more White Walkers and Whites and everything than all the others of them put together, which is awesome because she's Arya. But here is my question. I, I just, on Wikipedia, on the Wikipedia summary of this episode, it says Arya disguises herself with the face of a White Walker to get in and jump on the Night King. Did you see anything? To get no, I, I didn't see anything until she was in the air. Yeah. So I I have to watch it again, and I'm sure somebody will do a frame-by-frame breakdown of the end of that. Or probably there's 20 out there on the internet already, but I I did – that's – it made sense to me that that's how she got there. That I She just disguised herself as a, as one of the undead, as a zombie. We talked about that. she put that, on the face like. of a zombie and and walked out there. Yeah. Yeah, we, we discussed that she might do something like that, but – I just never saw any indication that she did anything other than just sneak quietly in among them and then jump, you know. Although mm-hmm. I don't know what she jumped off of. That was, she may have been like up, up. I mean, again, I got to watch it again. But there are trees around there. She yeah. could have been up one of the other trees, the trees too. Yeah, yeah, or so, a building or something. So, what did you think about Arya doing that? I mean, was that what we wanted? Did, is that? I, that to me, I was so, I didn't I didn't think that would be it, and I was so excited that it was. No, I didn't think it would be it either, and I loved that it was. I like when she jumped out of the air. I stood up on my couch, like I put my hand straight up in the air, like the touchdown signal. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, Absolutely. Like because I was so excited. I mean, I love her character, and yeah. I love the you know, that she's such a badass in this episode. And that she did it. Like, you know, you always, again, people want to poo-poo this episode, but the the 
conventional arc would be John or Daenerys killing the the Night King. Right. Right. Or Bran using some mind mojo stuff on him and killing him, whatever. Th- those were the those were the you know the past that were the easy to see, and this was not. Um, and so Arya's destiny basically has been to get here. And I like one of the things I, I think it was on maybe the Bald Move podcast. They talked about how you know she where she trained in Bravos, they think about giving people the peace and release of death. And these people who were the undead didn't have that. They were trapped in between and they didn't have the sweet release of death. So her killing the night King freed all those people to be able to go forward, to be with the, you know, um, to have that release. Um, so in some ways, it was kind of the kind of thing that the faceless men would have wanted to happen. That's good. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. I guess, but, you know, if if I had written this episode and everything was the same right up until that part, I probably, and I'm not saying this would have been better, I'm just saying this is where my brain would have gone based on the kind of thing that I would, you know, think it would happen I would have had like John, Arya, the Hound, Danny, like seven or eight of the last few heroes, Jamie, uh, Brienne. I'd have had them all come together and fight their way through the White Walkers. Mm-hmm. And then the Night King starts to intervene, and I'd have Bran use some kind of psychic powers to freeze him. Where he couldn't, and he's like struggling mentally with Bran. So you got Bran and the Night King struggling mm-hmm. mentally off to one side, while the heroes are all fighting those lieutenants, the White Walkers. And then finally, with a couple of them getting killed, they get past the White Walkers. And and just at that moment, the Night King breaks loose from Bran's control, and John rushes up. And there's a big, you know, Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker battle of swords between John. And the Night King and John somehow kills the Night King, or John and Danny together kill the Night King. Kind of like, kind of like Eowyn and Mary together killing the 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 Witch King of Angmar. You know, the the Lord of the Nazgul. That's how I would have done it. This was much simpler. <laughs> this was much faster and much more straightforward. It was, and it was very much a, you know, the the kind of if she didn't kill him in that moment, it was over. Um, yeah. And the other thing is like the night King does that kind of super, like he sees Bran a long way away and he does that kind of super villain. I'm going to stroll over to you and kill you with my bare hands kind of thing. Slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of just picking up the spear and going, Oh, it's over. That's, <laughs> I'm surprised the night King didn't speak for the first time. And I was going to say, he didn't get the monologue there. Yeah. But first let me tell you my plans. <laughs> oh, King's Landing shall be frozen solid. Cersei shall be blue. <laughs> she shall be my new White Walker chief. <laughs> oh, the mountain. She, he's already dead. He's ready for my army. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the only thing we didn't get was like a PowerPoint <laughs> presentation from the yeah. Night King. I needed the Night King PowerPoint, man. I wanted to see how he was going to attack King's Landing, what he, what he was going to do to each of the, you know, what was what was he going to do when the wildfire hits, you know. We have our marshmallows ready for when the wildfire hits. Um, 
But anyway, um, a few other things. You had in our notes. You had a note about how in the scenes they're waiting. You can see everybody's breath and what that means. You mean like that they're still alive? No, no. I meant like at the very beginning of the episode when they're waiting. When yeah. they breathe, it's just the winter. The yeah. winter cold, and yeah. you can see their breath. And you know, like the fact that you can see all their breath means it's getting colder and colder. Yeah, but they're still alive too. <laughs> They are, <laughs> but do. I'm just saying like, it was one of those things that we were like, it's cold there, and that means the Night King is close. Yeah, uh, yeah, winter is definitely coming, yeah. Uh, we talked about the Unsullied, we talked about the Night King. Sam, I mean, I had read interviews where he was talking about all the fighting that he did in this episode. Honestly, I didn't see him doing a lot of fighting. I saw him falling down and people saving him over and over. He he did some fighting, but then he also did a lot of the falling down, too. He, he was a really a, a net negative i feel like but yeah he got more people killed trying to save him than he actually killed but it's funny because he had killed you know killed them before but uh um and and it was cool we talked about melisandre and Arya already but i don't think we mentioned that they had that exchange again as well where melisandre says what do we say to the god of death i had forgotten that it was the was it Sirio, the sword trainer? Mm-hmm. Yes. He, he was the one that first told Arya, there's only one god and he's the god of death. And what do we say to him? Not today. And it's interesting how that set her on that path, you know, the whole idea of her being the killer, the death, you know, and death and everything. Mm-hmm. She's she's the most obsessed with death character outside of Thanos, honestly. <laughs> So, but it was neat that they had that exchange. What do we say to the God of Death? Not today, which was a nice little callback. That was all very good, I thought. No, it was great, and I, and I, you know, I didn't see how they were going to resolve the Melisandre thing, um, but I, she came back and made a difference. She and did. I was, you know, it was kind of cool the stuff she did during the episode. So, so, somebody I was reading called her. She basically in this episode was. A cigarette lighter with a faulty flint. <laughs> she kept trying to get it to start and start. I got the sense that when she was trying to light the trenches at the end, she had to burn through a whole lot of her reserves. I mean, that may just be headcanon, as they say, you know what I'm thinking, but I got the sense that she had to like really pour everything she had into it because the Night King was trying so hard to keep the fires from lighting. And it took a lot out of her so that once she, it's not like she was at top strength and then walked off to die. I got the sense that there wasn't a lot left in her tank anyway. Did you get that sense? Yeah. And, or that it was hard for her to focus on doing the magic she had to do with the zombies being right there. But, um, I mean, again, like the lighting, the swords was a great visual effect. The lighting the trench was a huge moment in the battle and then doing Arya. So she really played a pivotal role in this thing, which I never saw coming. She did. And then she told Davos, you don't have to kill me. I'll be dead soon. Don't worry. And he's just kind of looking at her. Yeah. And she's kind of, he's just kind of looking at her like, uh, huh? And then she was. Yeah. So, um, I'm glad we didn't have to see her, you know, 800 year old Yoda corpse lying out there. It was kind of from a distance and you got the idea. So, um, Okay, so where are we going forward then? Where where do things go? I like I said, I think based on both standard story structure, like I said, these guys are much more conventional, much more standard in their approach to storytelling than George is in the books. 
plus what we know about the directors, I feel very confident in saying that next episode will be count, you know, nurse the wound, nurse the wounded back to health a little bit, burn or bury the dead, probably burn, um, make battle plans regarding Cersei, and maybe by the end of the episode we're marching south. Yes. Uh, um, and that's all David Nutter. And then episode five, I feel like, will be the Battle of King's Landing. And I'm not sure how it can go better for them than it went for Stannis uh, back, you know, in what, season three or whatever, season two, season three, when they have a smaller army, it seems like, than what he had. But we'll see. And then I think the last episode will be tying everything up and, fi- and finding out mm-hmm. the final fate of everybody. So how do you see things going forward? No, I think you're right. I think the other thing that has to be resolved in the next episode is the John Daenerys, you know, who's who's going to run things and what's that relationship going to be going forward. And I'm genuinely worried about Daenerys. Yeah. I'm worried about her mental state. Okay. Yeah. Again, that'll, episode- be, a, that'll be a big part. Again, episode two, John, who she loves, is giving her the cold shoulder. Yep. And then he tells her that he's the heir to the throne and not her. And then in the battle, all her Dothraki are dead. 99% of the Unsullied are dead. Maybe one of her dragons is dead. Her other dragon is wounded. Um, we don't know about the rest of her people. But so her and Jorah's dead. Jorah's dead, yeah. So her power base and the Man. she brought this army to Westeros to win the throne and the army is now gone. So how is – and especially if John doesn't immediately fall on his knees and say, I've already given you my word. You're going to be the queen. I'm going to help you get to the throne and all that kind of stuff. I'm concerned about how she's going to react. Um, so that's my, one thing I'm really going to be paying attention to. And then, you know – my idea is that, like you said, this is a, a recovering and regrouping who's left, how many of us are there, how can we possibly win? Um, and so this is the moment when you know, they're outnumbered 10 to 1 or whatever, but they do have a dragon or two. This is Tyrion's moment, okay? It really is. Or, we, he hadn't gotten to do anything yet this season. It, well, and last season it was just losses all over the place for him. Yeah. So it is time for Tyrion to chalk up a big win and save everybody's bacon here with a couple of good ideas. Um, and, and so I think he's going to have some – now, the other thing that's out there, like when they're journeying south at the end of this next episode is Braun and that crossbow. And I still think it's possible that Braun shoots somebody in this group <laughs> in, in the next episode. So don't assume everybody makes it to King's Landing or whatever. So I, it's true. I just, as I said last episode, I just have a hard time believing that Braun is actually going to go through with it. I don't know. I mean, so, I, somebody on an article I read said, you know, you have so and so versus so and so, so and so versus so and so, and Braun versus whoever's not paying him. <laughs> That's his, you know, that's his moral compass is which, where's the money coming from? But he's still, I don't know. I just, I find it hard to believe he'd actually, but we'll see. Um, Yeah. So I think we may get a moment where his moral compass is like literally he's staring down the sights 
yeah. as Jamie or Tyrion, and then he has to make a decision to pull the trigger or join them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, I, I I think that's where we're going. I think you hit the nail on the head with the rest of it. And I and I think that um, I think that uh, we put the we put the Sansa versus Danny North versus Targaryens thing on hold for an episode, but that's got to come back now. Mm-hmm. I mean, and now she doesn't have the giant army to say, well, I don't care what you think, Sansa, because Danny is a lot more at the mercy of the North now than she was last Sunday. You know what I mean? Yeah, but she also saved the North's bacon. And anybody that doesn't see that is, you know, pretty cold-blooded. I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see. They better give Arya a medal. They need to have, like, the end of Star Wars and have Arya come up and give her a medal, man. Yeah, they get a, They should build a statue outside of Winterfell of <laughs> Arya Stark and Lyanna Mormont. That's what they ought to do. Yes. Get. There you go. There you go. Um, did, did we get any questions or anything this episode? Um, I think we've already answered them, but I'm going to double okay. check. Um, hey, uh... <laughs> hey, uh uh, we got an email from Mr. Nall who says, I, I have to know the confidence you felt when the Dothraki raised their flaming swords high and you saw the whole massive army in their battle formation versus when those flames went out 30 seconds later. <laughs> no kidding. I know. I When the Dothraki went out there, I'm thinking, well, that's stupid. Why are they doing that? And I thought, well, I guess they're Dothraki. They just can't stand to sit around anymore. They have to be in motion. They have to be going you know, on the attack. It's not really surprising, and so you know. But still, they—it um, just seemed like a waste because I sure did want them unleashed on King's Landing. I wanted—I wanted the Dothraki hitting Cersei's troops so bad, and I'm disappointed about that. And, and we got a couple of people saying how terrible the Night King was, but his plan was. But again, it, it, everybody wants to point to it being terrible because he lost. But let's right. be clear, like. He had the winter storm. He kept the White Walkers out of the battle. He didn't lose a single White Walker, you know. And the, again, the mm-hmm. other troops, the these zombies don't matter. They're he can wave his hands and make more of them. Absolutely. So they're literally worth nothing. Yeah. Um, so he he really he destroyed the entire human army without losing anybody he cared about, and he got within about two feet of Bran mm-hmm. to end the thing forever and win the war. When Arya took him out, and he was a hair's breadth away from killing everybody even before that, so I think he, you know, he could fuss about how he did things, but I think you know the attacking at night, um, keeping the White Walkers back, using the Winter Storm, um, kind of the way he was kind of flying in and out of the clouds and messing with Jon and Daenerys on their dragons um, was was pretty good. And he and he had the he had his dragon keep even though it was wounded keep John pinned down. That's right. So he couldn't do anything. He and, just, and like you said, he had control of the zombies in a much more fine control that like they were you know berserker attacking at some points at other points they were standing at attention. Yeah. And then they built the little human bridges across the fire oh, and man. stuff. So he, I don't think it was that terrible. No, no, I agree. Yeah, I thought this was a very good episode. I have I have issues with some of the military tactics, but that's more in show than just the episode. I think that that was just because of the impetuousness, for example, of the Dothraki 
or the particular fighting style of the Unsullied or whatever you want to go. But, um, all right. Well, anything else? Any last uh, thoughts or questions before we uh, call it a night and get ready to hurry through this next week to episode four? <laughs> Uh, not other than, you know, salute to Arya Stark. Valor Margolis. Valor Margolis, that's right. All right, John, what do we say to the God of Death, especially this week? Not today. Not today. We'll see you guys next week. Our patrons keep us going. That's the reason that you get to hear these shows. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can join their ranks and help support our programs and get all sorts of things back as benefits. Over the last uh, few months, John and I uh, of the White Rocket uh, Network, we've given away tons of free books, just mailed them out to people. Uh, we have vid- video things. We have special podcasts that only our, uh, our uh, patrons can hear for weeks at weeks at a time. Uh, we have quite a few perks. We have fantasy leagues and various things, if you like that. And here are the folks that keep the electricity on at the Pal- Palatial White Rocket Studios currently. Uh, we have to thank Brennan O'Dwyer, Samuel Salvatore, Christopher Burleson, Carl Von Drunker, and Phil Amthor. And then, of course, there's Winston Body, Willie Carden, Susan Trawick, ben, ben Spooner, Stephen Thompson, Chris Usher, Justin Bean, Steve Trawick, and Richard Stevens. And then we have David Hegler, Robert Mendenhall, Johnny Caldwell, Reynolds Wolf, Joshua Corbett, Valiant Hermes, Jacob and Robin Fleming, Clay Henson, Ann Kangian, Catherine England, George Gaston, Will Summerford, John McCune, Tom Anderson, David Evers, Andrew Barber, Timothy, Steve Harland, Dan Thompson, Wes Atkinson, Rich Reimer, Jared Albrecht, William Glenn Matthews and Joel Beckham, Theodore Gary, Shannon Butson, Taylor, Mickey B, Hugh Anderson, Shane Bailey, Mick Vigicana, Chris Thrash, Logan Chilton, Tony Perry, Alex Wynn, <coughs> Josh Teal, Dave Simpson, Earl Ricks, Mike Finley, C.T. Wayne and Dave Powell, and finally, Jerry, Jeremy Minton, Lane Middleton, Donnie Reynolds, Wade Carson, Ivor Evans, John Zavachin, Chris Camo, Darren Pyle, Chris, Wardam Wade, Jason Albrecht, Randall Walker, Ben Amos, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Patrick Williams, Rob Morgan, Stephen Schuster, James Taylor, John Stubbs, Kenneth Brent Rains, Nicholas Craig, Russell Milling, Matthew Wagstaff, Joey Miller, Mark Squire, Spanky, Brant Rumble, J.W. Rice, Michael Morton, and Lawrence Kane, plus our one-time and anonymous donors. Thank you guys all so very much. And you may not always out there want to hear the entire list, but you know what? We read the entire list every show that we can because that's how much we appreciate you guys supporting the shows. And for those of you that are not yet a member, you'll get your name called out too. So just go to www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net, and uh, you'll see the link to become a patron, or you can just go to patreon.com and look up Van Plexico, Van Allen Plexico, P-L-E-X-I-C-O. Uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.